Let's find our seats. Today's scripture reading is Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. It's the reading of the word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Thank you, Elder Stan. Many years ago, when my kids were much smaller, definitely smaller than me, unlike today, I miraculously convinced my family to go on a hike with me. It's not an easy task. Back then, I was the only one who enjoyed hiking, and it was summer break, and I thought it would be a good idea to get the family out of the house and enjoy the good old outdoors. I assured them this is not a, a strenuous hike. It's very pleasant with lots of shade. It will be a great time. And so what I envisioned was an awesome family outing full of laughter, free-flowing conversation, and even maybe conversations about God. I imagined everyone saying at the end, Dad, you are the best. Thank you for taking us out. This was so much better than staying at home. I just knew we were going to have a good time. Unfortunately, what I envisioned looked like nothing like what happened. What I didn't account for was the sweltering 90-degree heat. Neither did I account for the snake that appeared on the trail that freaked everyone out, and so everyone was on edge from that point forward. And the worst part of it all is before we left for the hike, when we left the house, my wife asked, can I wear my flip-flops? And I wanted to continue the theme of this is an easy hike, so I said, sure, hon, no problem. <laughs> you can guess what happened midway through the hike. She injures her toe and has to hobble the rest of the way back. By the time we returned to our car, no one was talking. <laughs> Everyone was hot, tired, cranky, and mad. My family was mad at me for forcing them to such torture, and I was mad at my family for not enjoying the torture. <laughs> the car ride home was completely silent until my youngest Sensing the tension in the air, blurted out, Dad, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> Instead of father of the year, I felt like failure of the year. Is that not a snapshot of what parenting is like? When our kids are first born and we are holding them in our arms for the first time, our hearts swell up with love and we say to ourselves, we make a vow, God, I am going to be the best dad, best mom there ever will be. If there's one thing I want to succeed at in life, I want to be a good dad or mom. Fast forward 5, 10, 15 years later, 
and the tune has changed. It's now, God, help me to still want to be a mom or a dad to my kids. Help me to be a good enough mom or dad. For those of you joining us for the first time, we're in the second part of a two-part series on parenting. And since today's sermon builds off of last week's, let me briefly recap for you what I shared last Sunday. Last Sunday, I shared two pillars of parenting. And the first pillar of parenting is this. There is a God, and you are not him. The first pillar warns us of the danger of deifying ourselves when it comes to our children. And so parenting begins with the humble recognition that our children do not belong to us, they belong to God. And so we don't own our children, no, we are sent by God to be his ambassadors, ambassadors to represent him to his children that he is lending us in this season of their lives. And so that's the first pillar. There is a God and you are not him. The second pillar is pretty similar. There is a God and your children are not him. And so we talked about the temptation to idolize our children and how idolatry is taking anything in this world, even good things like our children, and making them ultimate things. It's looking to our children to fill the shoes of God and give us only what God can give us, mainly significance, identity, security. Instead of looking to God for our identity, significance, and security, we look to our children and we elevate them above God and now not only live for them, but we live through them. Because their success becomes our success, their failures become our failures, so we become overbearing, over-controlling, we become anxious, insecure, because who we are now rides on them. And so idolatry ends up crushing our children, and it also ends up crushing us. Well, today I want to share three more pillars Pillar number three, not only must we avoid the danger of deifying ourselves and the danger of deifying our children, but we also must avoid the danger of having our children deify themselves. Because you see the temptation to self-deify is not unique to parents, but it's also one that our children will struggle with. The temptation to deify yourself, to see yourself as the master of your universe, the king of your own life, the mini-regent of your own kingdom, is one that is passed down from every generation, beginning with Adam and Eve. When God commanded Adam and Eve that they could eat from every tree except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what God is ultimately doing is reminding Adam, remember, I am king. You live under my authority. Yes, you are the crown creation of all the world. 
You alone have been imprinted with my image, and I want you to rule the world, but with the free will I give you, I'm going to remind you that you ultimately live under my authority. Unfortunately, when Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God and eat from the fruit, what they were ultimately doing was asserting their own authority. They were rebelling against God and saying, God, you will not rule us. We will rule ourselves. You will not tell us what is good and evil. We're going to make that determination ourselves. And so at the essence of every sin really is the the desire to assert our own will. It's the sin of autonomy. I will live my life my way. And we see this sinful impulse in every man, woman, and child. We see this in our children, which is why their favorite word is either no or mine, right? I hear parents say, I wish my child will say yes to me for once. It explains why every child wants every birthday party to be thrown for them. It explains why when a child doesn't get what he or her wants, they'll protest, they'll throw a tantrum, they'll flop on the floor, they'll stiffen their body, they'll make their voice heard. What they want you to know is, let my will be done. And to help combat this lie, God has instituted the family unit. He has blessed us with parents to teach us that we are not our own kings. And so one of the goals of parenting is to help our children understand the loving kingship of God, to help our children know and believe that there is a God and you are not him. And this point is clearly laid out in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. You were born under authority and I have given you your parents to represent my ultimate authority over you. And so how do we help our kids understand the authority and kingship of our kind and loving God? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 4. He says, by bringing them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Please train them and instruct them according to my commands. The word translated as training and instruction in the CSB, our version up here, is actually a little too vague for my taste, and it doesn't bring out the nuance that's conveyed in the Greek And so beginning with instruction, it has a much more positive connotation, where to instruct your child is to model for them, teach them, and encourage godly living. Much of instructing your children is captured in Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, which every Jewish family memorized. And so it's worth our time to look at Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4 through 9. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
all your soul and with all your strength. These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Notice how this passage kind of reviews the pillars we just went over, right? There's only one God and you are not him. And you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. We're, we're to teach our children these fundamental principles. But at the same time, this passage is also telling us, use any and every opportunity that comes your way. Teach them when you're sitting down, when you're sleeping, when you wake up, as you walk alongside the road. Use every method. Tie it to your, to your hands, your forehead, Put it on your doorposts. Wherever you go, wherever you are, whether it's at the dinner table, whether it's through regular family worship, whether it's when you say goodnight, whether you greet them in the morning, whether you're driving them to basketball practice, tell them about me. Now, the word translated as training in Ephesians 6, 4 has a slightly different nuance. It has a more negative nuance. As a result, it's translated as discipline or admonishment in other versions of the Bible. As you know, when you train for an event, oftentimes it involves a measure of pain and soreness. Anyone who has trained for a marathon understands that. In the same way, God is reminding us that to, to raise our children up sometimes will require applying loving, corrective discipline to our children. Sometimes it's going to require our children to face negative consequences for their decisions. Now, I know that as I mentioned the word discipline, all kinds of images are popping into your mind and you might be cringing right now and be like, I don't want anything to do with any type of religion that talks about discipline. I hesitate to talk about discipline because it's abused and misused by so many. And some of us here are traumatized by its misuse. But instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we need to see that true loving discipline is not antithetical to love, but the very expression of love. That when you love your child, you're going to then hate that which endangers them. Someone who loves their child is going to help their children understand you need to learn, look both ways before you cross the road. If you don't love your child, you're going to not care. The Bible teaches us that proper discipline comes hand in hand with love. Hebrews 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And then later in verse 11, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This leads us to the fourth pillar. And I can't underscore the importance of this fourth pillar enough. If you think about it, up until now, the first three pillars are not 
necessarily Christian. You don't have to be a Christian to adopt and apply the first three pillars. You don't have to be a Christian to know that you are not your child's God, that your child should not be your God, and your child should not believe he or she is God. You can be Jewish, you can be Muslim, you can be a Jehovah's Witness. You don't even have to be religious to uphold these pillars. But this fourth one is uniquely Christian. What is it? It's the conviction and belief that teaching our kids who God is, teaching them about what God desires, teaching them about the Ten Commandments, teaching them about the importance of Sunday worship, teaching them how to read the Bible, teaching them how to pray, how to give offering, teaching them about the virtues of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, teaching them the difference between right and wrong, teaching them what it looks like to honor your parents or to respect authority, how to have good manners, how to be obedient as good and necessary as all of these things are, they are not enough to raise your children in the Lord. They are insufficient to make your children godly. As important as it is to help our children understand what is right and what is wrong, your job is not done simply because they've memorized the Ten Commandments or simply because they're guilty if they fight with their siblings. That's not Christian parenting. That's moralistic parenting. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. If teaching our kids the law of God is all that they need to learn, then Jesus would have never needed to come to this earth. If the law of God is all that we need, then all we need is the Old Testament. All we need is Moses all we need are the, the millions of verses that describe who God is and what he likes and what he doesn't like. But clearly, the Old Testament is insufficient, which is why Jesus came down. Because what our kids ultimately need is not law, but grace. They need grace. The law of God is insufficient to change your child's heart. Rules, accountability, discipline, they are powerless to change your child's heart. I mean, think about it. I, I'm about to finish my two-year-long journey through the Old Testament and I'm going through the prophets right now, and I am astonished of how many times God warns Israel of their sin. How many times God disciplines Israel for their sins. How many prophets he sends their way telling Israel, stop your idolatry. If you continue to do so, this is going to happen. Over and over again, the drumbeat of judgment is beaten. 
And yet, despite all the messages, despite all the discipline and the consequences of their actions, Israel remains sinful. Law of God is not enough. We need grace. The law of God has the power to convict us of sin, but it does not have the power to deliver us from sin. The law of God has the power to reveal our sin to us, but it does not have the power to remove our sin from us. It can change your heart as much as a mirror can change your face. It can change your heart as much as a mirror can change your face. A mirror cannot change your face, in case you're wondering. It reveals your face. It shows your face. But it does nothing to deal with how you look. Unfortunately, when we don't get the results we're looking for with the law, we sometimes think our children need more law. They need me to yell louder, look angrier, get closer. Then they'll learn. And when that doesn't work, we resort to then fleshly tools. We resort to fear. You don't want to know what's going to happen if I count to ten. When I get through with you, you're not going to even recognize yourself. We resort to shame. You are a worthless, no good son of mine. How dare you act like this and come home with these grades? We resort to guilt. Don't you know how sad mommy is because of you? How all day long I can't help but cry because of you. We resort to greed. If you just be kind to your sibling, I'm going to take you to Disneyland. And so we resort to all kinds of carrots and sticks. We resort to all kinds of fleshly tools of intimidation or bribery And yes, it might get them to comply and do what we want them to do. Yes, it might lead to temporary obedience, but it does not lead to lasting heart change. We need to remember how Paul motivated us to obey and follow after God. Remember Ephesians 5, 1 and 2? Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. God said, Paul says, imitate God. But he knows that our ability to imitate God is directly connected to our experience of being dearly loved children. He knows that the power behind our obedience is directly connected to our experience of God's grace. Love God because he loved you. It's grace alone 
that changes the heart of every adult and child. And so how can we teach our kids about grace? Parents teach the whole Bible. And what I mean by the whole Bible is don't just teach about the law of God. Don't just use the Bible to help your children know where they've failed and how angry God is. Don't weaponize the Bible and use it to thump them over the head. As much as the Bible tells us what we are to do for God, its ultimate central theme is about what God has done for us. Its ultimate message is how God in his great mercy sent his son to die for us in our place and adopt us as his own unconditionally. And so don't point to the cross to make your child feel worse about themselves. For example, see what Jesus had to go through because of your sin. Don't you feel bad? but rather see what Jesus wanted to go through because he loves you so much. If I were to take a transcript or a video clip of how you parented your children this past month, what would be the overall tone of that message? Is what is communicated the minor key of disappointment, frustration, anger? Or will I walk away with the major key of love, forgiveness, tenderness, kindness? You want to know why so many walk away from the Lord when they grow up? It's because when they think of God, they think of their parents and they think of someone harsh and overbearing and exacting. May the message we communicate to our kids, the overall message, be one of grace. Another way to show our kids grace is through confession an easy application. If you want to show your kids that God is a God who loves to forgive, well then show them that he even forgives you. When you sin against your kids, and we all do, don't justify, don't blame them for your sin against them. Don't excuse, don't minimize Confess. As much as self-righteousness and pride is a turnoff to our God, self-righteous, self-justifying parents turn off our kids. Confess, humble yourself, admit, mommy, daddy, we fell short in this area. Would you please forgive me? Would you pray for me right now? 
I'm going to pray for forgiveness, and I want you to pray for me so that our kids, when they encounter their own shame and guilt, they're not going to feel like they're the only sinner in the room, which shames them even more and makes them deal with that in very destructive ways. But rather, when they feel bad about their own sinfulness, they'll see, you know what? There is one who can relieve me from this shame. There is one who can act as a balm for my guilt. There is one whose arms I can jump into and run in and and hide, and his name is Jesus. I've seen mom and dad do it, and if he's good enough for them, he's good enough for me. Confession. Now, this leads me to the fifth and final pillar. Some of you right now might be feeling overwhelmed by your own shortcomings. It's like, of all the Sundays we have family worship, why today? Why does my child have to sit right next to me? He might be going like this to me right now. Shame, guilt, tactics. Oh, that sounds familiar, mom, dad. Throughout this sermon, you might have just felt super laid low by all the ways you have failed your child. And what makes things hard is that your kids are not young anymore. And you say to yourself, I wish I knew this back when they were little. You might be saying to yourself, I blew it. I messed up, and I can't reparent my kids. They already have suffered from my mistakes. And you might be feeling miserable. Well, the fifth pillar is this. God has come to save sinners. God is drawn to those whose families are falling apart. God is especially attracted to those who feel like there's no hope. When you read the Bible, it is littered with dysfunctional families. It's filled with broken and messed up families. You think your family is messed up? I am pretty sure it's not as messed up as the families we find in Scripture. You don't need to read very long to encounter your first dysfunctional family. You think your kids fight. How about Adam and Eve? One of them murdered his brother. How about Isaac's family? A family that is so divided by favoritism, where Isaac favored Esau, Rebekah favored Jacob, leading to a vicious sibling rivalry full of deception and swindling and deceit to the point where Jacob needs to run away as a fugitive for stealing his father's inheritance. And how about Jacob? You would think he would learn from his own parents' mistakes. 
But no, when he has kids, he favors Joseph of the 12 boys, leading to again another vicious rivalry where the other 11 sell Joseph away as a slave and tell God one of the cruelest lies you can ever tell a father, your son was murdered and is now dead. How about King David? His family is torn apart by adultery. His family grieves over the loss of a child as a consequence of his sin. He has a son who is plotting his own father's murder. David did not feel safe in his own home and must live as a fugitive out of fear for his son. I mean, the list goes on and on of just how broken and dysfunctional families are. I purposely skipped over some families because it was too rated R for our audience this morning. But let me remind you that these families I just talked about are not the rejects of the Bible. They are not the outcasts of God. They they are not the enemies of God. These are the chosen families of God. God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are his chosen people. And they are the recipients of his love, mercy, and grace. They are even instruments of his kingdom. And so this is my way of saying, dear friends, no matter how discouraged you might be over the state of your family, take heart because God loves sinners. And if God can save these families, he can certainly save yours. No matter how old your children might be, whether they are adults and have their own families, so long as their heart beats, there is hope of transformation for them. So to quickly review, don't deify yourself, don't deify your children, don't let your children think they're God Know that the law of God is not enough. They need grace. And lastly, God is a God who is attracted to sinners. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you that you are a God of grace whose heart leans towards the brokenhearted, to the hopeless, to the ashamed, to the regretful, to those who are mourning over their own choices and mistakes. Thank you, O Lord, that you have chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the strong. And Lord, we confess to you that we are one of those fools. We confess to you that we don't know what we're doing when it comes to parenting. We confess to you that we make way more mistakes than successes. And so we look to you, O Lord, to redeem 
our families, to redeem our parenting, to even use our mistakes for your glory so that this next generation will come and taste and see how good you are. So we pray for grace, grace that flows towards us and grace that flows from us to our children. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.